Good morning. Thankful for just uh, thinking about the scriptures we read and the hope of the promise we have in the Lord from the songs that uh, we sung and we're listening to and just the, the great joy it begins to set in the anticipation it builds in our heart as we look forward to this Christmas season, celebrating the the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, as we look forward to the, the hope that entered the world through Him, the light that has come into the darkness. It fits very well with our theme this morning as we continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, as we continue looking at this difficult subject that we started, really started a few weeks ago, but we delved into a new last week on forgiveness. I gave you a pop quiz last week. Don't worry, I'm not going to test you this morning. But one of the questions we asked was this, true or false, is a willingness to forgive a test of whether or not a person will go to heaven when he or she dies? It's one of the questions we didn't get to last week in answering. My, I did give you my answer to that question, which is that it's true. That the willingness to forgive is one of the most accurate barometers of whether or not someone is a Christian. I can't see your heart. I can't peer into your mind to see how the Lord may have or may not have yet redeemed you. But one of the clearest outward expressions we have that one has tasted the forgiveness of the Lord, has experienced the forgiveness of God, is their willingness to forgive others. And yet forgiveness, true biblical forgiveness, is one of the most difficult things to practice in this life. It really is. When we're hurt, when we've been attacked, when we've been slandered, what is our natural propensity? What is our natural inclination? How do we want to respond? The children can answer this. How do you respond when someone does something you don't like? to lash out, it's to quickly correct them, it's to become embittered toward them, it's to want to hurt them. And yet our willingness to forgive, our ability to forgive, is going to be one of the most practicable, practical applications we can offer to Jesus' instruction from the Sermon on the Mount to turn the other cheek. And as we return this morning to one of the most significant New Testament texts on the matter of forgiveness, we will be reminded not only of the necessity and of the significance of forgiveness, but also because it is so hard, because it is so difficult, because it is such a difficult thing to put into practice, where does the power, the source, the ability to do this come from? How can we do this if it's so hard? So you have, if you haven't opened your Bible already, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We'll pick up in verse 21 where Peter came to the Lord after that description of that spiritual rescue mission. How to rescue the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Those who have become of necessity the greatest. Because they are in sin and they need to be rescued. They need to be reminded 
that they are sheep and to bring them back into the fold. Peter, recognizing the significance of this and the weightiness of this, asked that question, how many times? And in his mind, his generous estimation is seven times? Do I forgive a brother who has sinned against me and done the same thing repeatedly? And as we were reminded last week, Jesus lays that quickly to rest and says there is no accounting. There is no limit. Beginning in verse 21 of Matthew 18, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me? And I forgive him up to seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. And so the fit slave fell to the ground, prostrated himself before him saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. He seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. His fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved. And they came and they reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this important and yet difficult task, difficult because of what it demands of us this morning, I pray that you would help us to see the significance of the debt that's been forgiven on our account. That you would create within us a perspective, that you would help the scales to fall from our eyes when it comes to how we deal with others, how we view others. That we not hold them to a standard that we would not want to be held to. That instead we treat them the way you have treated us and dealt so graciously with us. Give us patience. Give us forbearance. 
Father, help to show us our neediness this morning. Give us a poverty of spirit, a humility of spirit that cries out to you because, Lord, this is not something that is humanly possible. These are not things that can be done apart from you and your spirit. Help us to walk by the spirit in putting into practice the things that we will study this morning. In your name, amen. Last week, as we considered verses 21 and 22 and Peter's question regarding the extent of forgiveness, we, we really did determine that God provides no limitation to the frequency of repetitive forgiveness. Even when it's the same sin done by the same person over and over and over again. And that's really a great starting place because that's probably the most frustrating time to forgive someone. Just ask any parent. Well, the child does the same thing over and over and over again. Ask my parents. We referred to the definition of forgiveness Chris Bronze provided that really helped to synthesize much of Scripture's teaching on the topic. And I, I want to start again by providing that definition as we enter back into this discussion of forgiveness, as we observe the source and the power and really the motivation behind forgiveness. Forgiveness, he writes, is a commitment to the offended person to pardon graciously the repentant from moral liability and to be reconciled to that person, although not all consequences are necessarily eliminated. Again, forgiveness is that commitment by the offended person to pardon graciously the repentant from all moral liability. And again, as we've already acknowledged this morning, as we discussed last week, this is a very, very hard thing to do. And we need all the help we can get to be able to forgive the way Jesus says we should forgive. I think that's exactly why he launches into this parable. Because he's just set before Peter, he's just set before the disciples, he's just placed before us an impossible standard in our own strength. And so we have to be given a new perspective. We have to have a way of accomplishing this. God is not in the habit, Christ is not in the habit of giving us things that we cannot do without enabling us, without empowering us to be able to do them. Anyone that believes they can forgive another person through their own power, the way Scripture explains forgiveness doesn't fully understand or appreciate the ugliness of sin, the depravity of the human heart, or the type of forgiveness God calls us to display. Put succinctly, they have severely overestimated their spiritual ability. But as we'll see this morning, as we've already read in this parable, we will see that there is a power, a source, a fount of forgiveness from which we can draw and it originates from a person who recognizes their spiritual neediness. Who recognizes the forgiveness Christ has offered. Who cries out to the Lord for help and reflects continually on the depth of forgiveness they have received. And draws from that depth. We're going to walk through the parable this morning before drawing too many further conclusions. 
really all we're going to do is observe this text together. I'm not going to retell the parable, but there are some important things that I think we need to reflect upon that helps to let the, the gravitas, the weightiness of what is going on here sink in. Jesus begins this parable in verse 23 with, For this reason. For what reason? What is the reason that gives rise to this parable and explanation? Well, we've already talked about it. That the unlimited, and notice I didn't say unconditional, but the unlimited forgiveness we are to show. Because humanly speaking, from the viewpoint of pure justice, I should not have to forgive this many times. Pure justice does not require forgiveness. I should not have to show forgiveness. I should not have to relinquish the debt. I should not have to let go of the demand for a pound of flesh. I should be able to exact what is due to me from the other person. That is justice. So what reason then is there that would demand of me What reason could God, a perfect, holy, and just God, what right would he have to demand that I forgive when legally I am justified? And that's what Jesus is going to show us. That's the for this reason. This is why we're called to forgive when justice does not demand it. And it introduces the moral component that highlights that our very salvation hangs in the balance. Our very standing with God. We must put on new glasses and view our interaction with one another and the world through a very different set of lenses. There's really three scenes here in this parable. And verse 23 begins the first of those three scenes and introduces us to the two main characters. There's a few other characters at play, but you have the slave, the primary slave, Notice there'll be the slave, then there's a fellow slave, and then there's the fellow slaves. So you got to pay attention. But there's the slave, who will later become known as the wicked slave. And you have this king, also called lord or master. Those are the primary persons in view. Now the term slave can have a variety of meanings or connotations in the ancient world. Here it most likely referred to one who was in the service of the king. Perhaps one who had bid on the collection of taxes for a large area of land and fell woefully short. This king and this slave are the focus of the parable. And the king here desires to settle accounts. He he wants to call in the debts that are owed. Now this is not an unjust thing for a king to do, right? There's nothing wrong with a king saying, okay, everybody who owes me money, it's time to pay. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing immoral about this scene. It is perfectly just for the one who is owed to seek payment when payment is due. The problem begins when a slave is brought in who is not able to pay. In fact, that's putting it mildly. He owes an incredibly large sum. A sum so large, in fact, that humanly speaking, repayment is impossible. And that's the point. The point is that this is not a debt that can be repaid. 10,000 talents were the equivalent to somewhere at minimum 10 to 12 billion dollars by today's reckoning. 
And for a slave or one who was in the service of the king, there was no human means of ever repaying this debt. The average day's wage was one denarii. 6,000 denarii made up one talent. So assuming this slave made 10 times that amount, let's say he was really high up in service to the king, made 10 times that amount, it would take him over 16,000 years to repay this debt. The average annual income in the U.S. is almost $32,000. So if someone made 10 times that amount or $320,000 each year, it would take them 31,000 years to repay just the low-end estimate on what this amount of money was. Well, surprise, surprise, the slave didn't have that amount of money on him. So the king ordered that he be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, until repayment should be made. This was a normal process. Whatever freedoms that person enjoyed were to be taken from him. He and his family were now to know no other existence than backbreaking labor required to pay back an impossible debt. This was an utterly hopeless situation for this slave. The king, though, was again not acting wrongly. There's nothing the king's doing here that's wrong. He's perfectly just, perfectly right to get whatever amount of money he can from this slave. I mean, the king knows he'll never see all of it back, but at least I can get some of it back. I mean, the king has roads to upkeep, soldiers to pay. So he starts to head down the road of getting some of this money back. In verse 26, the slave at this point has nothing to lose. Throws himself on the ground, begging and pleading. And he makes what is an absolutely absurd promise in light of what we've just talked about regarding the sum, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. Now at this point, if you're the king, you may have been tempted just to laugh at him. First, this slave had the arrogance to try and steal from the king. I don't know what other way to put it. He had gone into severe debt with this king Apparently had no intention of ever repaying it. Knew he could never repay it. What else is that other than thievery? Racking up an impossible debt that can never be repaid. And now when he's called to give an account on this death, debt that he never intended to repay, thinking he could live without consequences, without repercussion, while carrying this enormous debt, thinking there would never be a day of reckoning, When faced with the terrifying consequences of his actions, of his debt, he makes a false and impossible promise. He's lying. Again, as we've already seen, it's impossible for a slave to ever repay even a small fraction of what was owed. It would take him two lifetimes to pay almost 1%. But does the king laugh at him? Does he mock him? Does he drive him from the court in chains? No. A remarkable thing happens in verse 27. Without pomp and circumstance, this great king feels compassion and releases him and forgives him the debt. Doesn't just release him to go and try and repay what he can. He releases him and forgives the debt. 
This is completely unexpected. There's nothing in the text that would have led us to believe up to this point that he was going to be moved with compassion. There's nothing in the story that would set us up to expect compassion from the master, from this king to his slave. The king does far more than the slave even asks for. The slave never asked to be free. The slave couldn't even comprehend in his mind a scenario where he gets out from under the debt. The best he could do would be to forestall the punishment, the day of reckoning. He just wants more time. But the king, this master, completely forgives and eliminates this debt. So not only was the slave and his family spared the immediate sentence of hard labor, they no longer live under the crushing weight of debt hanging over them. And the scene ends there. Curtain drops suddenly. You can imagine the relief that flooded over the slave. You can imagine that it takes some time, or it should take some time for the slave to even regain his composure after the emotional roller coaster he had just been put through. And this is what makes what takes place even more difficult, and I would even say painful, to read or to watch. The curtain pulls back up on scene two in verse 28. And again, we've just been through an emotional roller coaster. Perhaps if you were watching the scene, you would have still been wiping the tears from your eyes as you observed the immense compassion and mercy that was displayed by this king and this ruler. And now I would ask, if this had been you, if any one of you would have experienced this, what would your next response have been? Likely it would have been to go out and rejoice, to tell your family, your friends, your neighbors what has just taken place. The anticipated response, however, is anything but what happens. What happens when the curtain opens? The slave went out. Went out from where? From the very court, from the very presence of the king that he was just in. In other words, no time has lapsed. And he goes out to find, to seek out a fellow slave. It was not happenstance that they ran into each other. He left the presence of the king who had just forgiven him with the intention of going and finding the slave who owed him money. I mean, the the sickening reality of what is going on begins to set in. How in the world does this slave go from what has taken place so completely unaffected? How can he be so evil, so wicked, so self-centered that the only action on his mind is seeking out another slave for repayment of a debt? And notice the evil intent. Goes out and finds the one who owed him. He sets out to do it. It, Again, was not an accident that they met up. The slave goes out completely unchanged, completely unaffected by the forgiveness he had experienced. And he sets out with a wicked and selfish intent. And the amount owed? One six hundred thousandth of the amount he was owed. One six hundred thousandth of the amount, equivalent to maybe four months of work. 
I mean, it, it was a manageable amount. By today's standard, maybe fifteen dollars to $20,000. It's a sizable amount, but nothing that could not be repaid with time and hard work. But this wicked slave, he is beyond all reason. Notice, too, that this slave, he resorts immediately to physical violence, something the king didn't even do in trying to extract the debt initially. Begins to choke his fellow slave, putting his hands around his throat, grabbing at him, telling him to pay back all that he owes. In verses 29 through 30, the response of that fellow slave is identical to the first slave when brought before the king. He falls to the ground crying out, Have patience with me and I will repay you. I mean, that should have immediately triggered something in the slave's, first slave's mind, right? But the wicked slave is unwilling to show patience, much less forgiveness. The contrast drawn is absolutely incredible. Not only is there no mercy or compassion, there is not even patience to allow for repayment. The but here in verse 30 contrasts so starkly to the first scene with the gracious master. Here this wicked slave acts out the threat of the master in the first scene by actually throwing this slave into prison until he should repay. Now, I want to do something. I want you to pretend for a second we have not read verses 23 through 27. Now, if you have not read verses 23 through 27, is what the first slave do, is doing now wrong? No. It may be harsh, but it's not wrong. It's not unjust. He is owed this money. The other slave cannot pay. Taken in a microcosm, apart from the greater context that we've just read, he's not wrong. He is owed money. Time is due to pay it. The other slave does not have it, so the first slave has him thrown into prison to either work off the payment or to exhort family members to make payment on his behalf. And that's the way the world works. It may be hard, but it was not wrong or unjust. There are consequences for not paying your debts. And this second slave was suffering those consequences. But it's not that second slave who is in view, is it? This first slave is fully within his rights, and we might think nothing more than harsh but fair without the earlier context. But we do have a greater context, don't we? As do the other slaves and servants of the king. As the curtain drops on scene two, the slave in prison, it opens in verse 31, scene three opens, with other slaves and servants running back to the king. Slaves who are aware of what had taken place just a short time ago. They rush to the king to report all that has taken place. You see, even though that, second, that first slave may have been just in what he did, they know it is not okay. Their moral sensibilities have been inflamed. 
This is wrong. Everyone who has ever read this text, who has ever heard this story, knows it is wrong. But these fellow slaves and every one of us understand the vileness of what has taken place. How could one, again, be so unaffected by mercy and grace? So these other slaves who witnessed these events, the fellow servants are utterly distraught. They rush to the king and they reveal again all that has taken place. The king summons the slave for the first time and for the first time we hear the king speak. We know he spoke. He alleviated the debt. He showed compassion and mercy to the slave, but we haven't heard him speak yet. Now we have his specific words clearly recorded. And summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Notice he's putting it into the context of moral culpability by calling him wicked. It is not enough to be right by the law standards. There is another standard at bear in this world. There's a standard that has been written on the conscience of every person so that none are without excuse. And you are wicked by that standard. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? Yes, that's the question we all want answered. Why could you not show the same mercy and compassion that I showed? How did my mercy and compassion not change you at all? This time there is no speech from the slave. We might imagine that he groveled or begged for mercy again. There's no record of it. Instead, we have only the punishment of the king. No matter how legally just the slave was in demanding payment from his fellow slave, he is now being judged according to his own standard. Matthew 7, 1 through 2 from the Sermon on the Mount is frequently taken out of context, but here we see that correct application. Do not judge so that you will not be judged, for in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. We won't get into it this morning. We talked about it when going through the Sermon on the Mount. This is not saying throw discernment out the window. This is a reminder that we need to be very careful in how we apply judgment, in what vengeance we would like to see exacted on this earth specifically with regard to individual matters. We must be careful the standard of measurement we hold up to others. In fact, the next time you're struggling to forgive someone, ask this, would I want to be held to that same standard? Would I want them to be judged the same way and evaluated the same way I'm evaluating them? Have I taken the time to understand the context? Have I taken the time to understand the situation? It doesn't excuse sin, but do I really want to be judged the same way? Am I really so without sin that I can cast the first stone? It really flows into what follows in the Sermon on the Mount about taking the log out of your own eye before removing the speck from your brother's. Well, the wrath of the king is now displayed 
Where before he was simply going to act out justice and recoup some of the debt he was owed, he now acts out of great wrath over the wickedness of this slave. So he hands him over to the torturers until all should be repaid, which again we know is an impossibility. The sad reality is that this person will suffer torture and physical pain without end. Now, as the curtain closes on this final scene, we might breathe a sigh of relief. Good. Justice has been meted out. It's been served. The wicked slave got what he deserved. But before we can even finish exhaling, Jesus speaks. And he provides an incredibly sobering word to every disciple to everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's one of the most sobering texts in all of Scripture. Turning to each of those who are sitting there listening, who are judging the wicked slave, he says, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Remember the question I asked last week and again to start this morning. Is a willingness to forgive really a test of whether or not a person will go to heaven when he or she dies? Yes, it is. The willingness to forgive is one of the most accurate barometers or tests for whether or not someone is a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus first taught this parable before the cross. The disciples did not yet have in mind the death of Jesus Christ for their sins, the forgiveness, the mercy, the grace that Jesus expects the disciples to understand when he first gives this parable as something that has always been displayed in the character of God. We see it in Psalm 32 where David rejoices in God's forgiveness we read that together from Psalm 25 this morning where again and again David the psalmist recognizes the mercy, the compassion, the forgiveness of God. And yet the greatest expression of that mercy and that grace, what all other expressions anticipate or look back to is the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross for our sin. So if anything, the impact of this parable should have taken on even greater meaning after the cross. The weight of it. The impact of it. And I don't think that fact escaped Matthew, which is why it was included in this text. And it's because herein lies the power of forgiveness. We can and must forgive because God forgives. The response of the wicked slave is so unthinkable and so vile because we cannot even fathom a scenario where such great forgiveness does not enable or change a person into a forgiving person, into someone who would forgive others. We cannot fathom it. That's why it bothers us so much. This is why we can forgive. Because we've been forgiven. 
By remembering God's great forgiveness to us. That's the well we draw from. We don't try to draw from our own experience. We don't try to draw from ourselves. We draw from the well of God's forgiveness. You will dry up very quickly if you try to apply forgiveness from what you can manufacture. You must go to the well which is Christ. The unforgiving person has either temporarily forgotten the forgiveness of God and must be reminded of it, or they have never experienced that forgiveness. There's really no other option. That is exactly Jesus' point in verse 35. To deny forgiveness is to deny one's relationship to the Father. To deny forgiveness to another is to deny your relationship to God. As one commentator notes, no true disciple could ever act as this servant did. Those who do so show that they have not really received forgiveness. And that's what's going on here. The situation in this parable is unthinkable. And the takeaway is this, those who will not forgive must not expect to be forgiven. And this is what Jesus expressed when teaching the disciples to pray in Matthew 6. Jesus was laying the groundwork for this teaching on forgiveness here in Matthew 18 when he said in Matthew 6:12, teaching us to pray, forgive us our debts, our sins, as we forgive our debtors. It expects and anticipates that a true disciple is one who is actively practicing forgiveness. But we cannot miss the sobering reality of what Jesus is teaching here. As another pastor noted, saying, I cannot or will not forgive is another way of saying, I am thinking about going to hell. You realize that? Based on this text, to say I am not going to forgive, especially if you know better, is to say I would rather go to hell. The idea of hell has really been whitewashed in our society, in our culture, in our time. It doesn't contain the terror that it should. It's helpful at times to be reminded of the horrors of hell. And it is this for a couple of reasons. One is, this whole setup was to see the greatness of the forgiveness offered in light of the debt. How can we understand the greatness of that debt if we do not understand what we've been forgiven from, rescued from, saved from, delivered from? Likewise, for those who have never tasted this forgiveness, you need to understand this morning what is at stake. Jonathan Edwards preached on the eternity of hell's torments. I'm going to read a little bit lengthier of a description. But in a culture that's whitewashed it so much, I think we could use a few minutes to reflect upon the horrors of hell. He writes saying, Do but consider what it is to suffer extreme torment forever and ever. To suffer a day and night. From one day to another, from one year to another, from one age to another, from one thousand ages to another. In pain, in wailing, lamenting, groaning, shrieking, gnashing your teeth, with your bodies and every member full of racking torture, 
without any possibility of getting ease, without any possibility of moving God to pity by your cries, without any possibility of hiding yourself from Him, without any possibility of diverting your thoughts from your pain, without any possibility of obtaining any manner of mitigation or help or change or better in any way. Do but consider how dreadful despair will be in such torment. How dismal will it be when you are under these racking torments to know assuredly that you never, never shall be delivered from them, to have no hope when you shall wish that you might but be turned into nothing but shall have no hope of it. After you shall have endured these torments millions of years but shall have no hope of it ending without any rest, day or night, or one minute's ease, yet you shall have no hope of ever being delivered. That you are not one whit nearer to the end of your torments, but that still there are the same groans, the same shrieks, the same doleful cries incessantly made by you forever and ever. And that your souls, which shall have been burning and roasting all this while in these glowing flames, yet shall not have been consumed, but will remain to roast through an eternity, yet which will not have been at all shortened by what shall have been passed. If you're sitting here this morning, you need to understand what awaits you if you will not forgive. Because if you will not forgive others, then you are in essence saying, I choose the fires of hell over the grace of God. Note though that there is a significant difference between saying I will not and I cannot. Because there is not one of us here that can forgive of our own accord. Not this way. Without Christ, without seeing and experiencing the forgiveness of God, without daily walking by the Spirit and the power of the Spirit and reminding ourselves of this forgiveness, there's not one of us that can forgive. So the reason that Jesus, in teaching his disciples to pray, made it a daily thing. We see this in the prayer for the daily bread. Reminding oneself daily of the forgiveness. Daily of my need to be forgiven, daily of my need to forgive others. Because every one of us starts as this wicked slave did when the story opened, under an impossible debt, unable to repay it, no hope of repaying it. For most of us thinking that we would somehow escape consequences, but they will assuredly come. There will be a day of reckoning. God is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards all, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Do not mistake the Lord's patience with you as forgiveness of your sin if you have not repented, if you have not cried out to Him. But God's forgiveness, His offer of forgiveness is open to all. Will you trust in it? Have you trusted in it? Will you cry out to God and express your neediness and inability to pay this debt yourself? 
You see, that's the true source of strength for any of us that have had to forgive, which as a believer should be a regular practice, but we, we understand that it has to be because of God's forgiveness. It has to become about through our acknowledging our weakness, our inability. especially with something so difficult as forgiveness. I think it ironic that we often think those that must struggle the least with forgiveness must be those who appear spiritually strong, those who seem to have it all together. Those aren't the ones Scripture says are able to appropriate this correctly. It's those who cry out to the Lord who look to Him for help, who acknowledge their spiritual weakness, who acknowledge, recognize their spiritual poverty and cry out for help. Psalmist writes in Psalm 121, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. That's where our help comes in practicing forgiveness. It's what enables us to forgive. And once we've tasted of that forgiveness, it becomes the greatest motivation to forgive. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for this poignant, clear reminder of forgiveness. Father, not just of forgiveness in the abstract, but forgiveness applied to each of us, the offer of forgiveness that's been given. For those of us who have tasted of forgiveness, the reminder of where to go when it is hard to forgive. Father, leaving here this morning, we all know we are inexcusable in knowing that we must forgive others. Help us to regularly, frequently, daily turn to you and turn to that well of forgiveness and draw from it in applying it to others. Pray this in your name. Amen. This stands